Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. The Avro Arrow is a topic that has fascinated Canadians since its controversial cancellation in 1959. However, in the last 10 years, the narrative has changed dramatically from an American plot to ruin our aerospace industry to a calculated decision made by the Canadian government based on very real calculations about the security threat to North America and the changing defense landscape of the late 1950s. Now, in this episode, we talk with Alan Barnes, who has recently uncovered some incredible research that shows how important Canadian intelligence services were to the decision to cancel the Avro Aero project, Allen has clearly uncovered that not only was the cancellation of the Arrow a highly calculated move by the Diefenbaker government, but Canada's newly established intelligence services played a key role in helping the Canadian government predict the future of defense issues, which in turn spelled the end of the Arrow project. This is Season 9, Episode 9, A Ballistic Decision. Canada's Intelligence Services, and the Cancellation of the Avro Arrow. Alan Barnes was an analyst and a manager of analysts in the Canadian intelligence community for over 25 years. He served as a military intelligence officer, and as the Middle East Analyst in the Political Intelligence Division of the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. Mr. Barnes moved to the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat of the Privy Council Office when that organization was formed in 1993, and was the director of the IAS Middle East and Africa Division from 1995 until his retirement in 2011. Mr. Barnes played a key role in the IAS's efforts to improve analytical tradecraft and in the training of new analysts. Since his retirement, Mr. Barnes has continued his work on issues related to intelligence assessment, 
He is currently researching the history of strategic intelligence in Canada since 1945 and is project co-leader of the Canadian Foreign Intelligence History Project. Now, the Canadian Foreign Intelligence History Project is something that is pretty cool. It is a collaborative effort to encourage the study of foreign intelligence in Canada and to facilitate access to archival records on this subject. By working together, researchers have a better chance of overcoming the many challenges associated with working in this field. Now, I began our conversation by asking Alan about the early post-war changes to Canada's intelligence services. Uh, after the Second World War, um, there was a, a need to develop a common uh, defense policy and defense planning for the defense of North America. And to do that, you needed joint uh, intelligence assessments so that both countries could agree on what the threat was you were actually defending against. But Canada didn't really have any capacity to carry out that kind of strategic analysis. So in the five years after the Second World War, they developed a number of, of organizations and analytic groups that could actually produce those um, strategic assessments uh, in terms of uh, monitoring Soviet uh, industrial capacity, uh, scientific developments, uh, and so on. So that was something uh, new for Canada and linked quite closely to the whole idea of uh, threat to North America and uh, the, the joint uh, assessments were, were prepared by uh, Canada and the U.S. as the basis of defense planning. And what were like maybe a couple of the most important bodies that formed during this period? Uh, well, the most important body was the Joint Intelligence Committee. Uh, so people may have heard of the British Joint Intelligence Committee, but Canada had a similar committee. It was actually created in 1942, but it became much more active after the Second World War uh, as the Canadian intelligence community grew. So uh, that was the coordinating body uh, for the strategic assessments that were produced by Canada. And the members of that uh, committee included the, the three the service uh, intelligence bodies, so the Directorate of uh, Military Intelligence, Naval Intelligence, and Air Intelligence uh, sat there. The committee was actually chaired by an officer from the Department of External Affairs. And also members of that group were the two uh, new uh, bodies, uh, the Joint Intelligence Bureau, which looked at uh, Soviet defense production and uh, related issues, and the Directorate of Scientific Intelligence. Uh, so those the, the, the heads of those um, organizations sat in the Joint Intelligence Committee. The RCMP uh, also sat occasionally on the committee, but that was sort of less relevant to the issues we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. But uh, that body uh, had a small group of uh, intelligence analysts working for it that would actually produce the intelligence assessments uh, on, on this subject, on the threat to North America, uh, but also a whole range of other strategic issues that the Joint Intelligence Committee was concerned with. So this now gave Canada the capacity to produce these kinds of independent um, strategic assessments that were so important for informing uh, Canadian policy. And just to clarify, we didn't really have the capacity for this independent assessment before? No, that's right. I mean, up until late in the Second World War, Canada essentially relied entirely on uh, the United Kingdom initially, 
and then later in the war, more on the United States for this kind of strategic assessment. And uh, the there, there was a Canadian you know, military, naval, and air intelligence groups, but they were looking at much sort of more narrowly focused issues mm. and so on, rather than these broad strategic assessments. Uh, but you know, that ran into problems. So, for example, the decision to send Canadian troops to Hong Kong in 1941, uh, essentially that was based on uh, what we were told by the British in terms of what we were getting into and so on. But Canada didn't have any capacity then to do its own uh, strategic analysis saying, you know, what really was the threat? What would happen? Uh, you know, what was likely to happen with uh, Canadian troops in that situation and so on? So, um you know, previously, Canada had been essentially reliant entirely on intelligence uh, analysis it received from, from its allies. Uh, so following the Second World War, there was a recognition, recognition that uh, Canada had to develop its own independent capacity to carry out that kind of uh, strategic analysis. And the various groups that I've described are those that sort of gradually built up this, uh, this ability. And so within this emerging sort of new form or this sort of new intelligence environment within Canada, there's this issue that you identify as the bomber gap controversy. And I wondered if you could explain that controversy and how that affected maybe not only the Canadian, but even American intelligence environment. Uh, that's a very interesting question and a very interesting situation in, in the mid fifties. So as I said, uh, Canada and the U.S. were involved in these joint assessments of the threat to North America. And in the 50s, essentially, it was a question of the, the Soviet bomber threat that was uh, gradually uh, increasing. And the, the, the result of this collaboration between the U.S. and Canada was a series of annual papers looking at the threat to North America, and particularly the, the bomber threat. Um, and various developments were taking place, obviously, in the Soviet Union, with new bombers being developed and so on. Um, but the Soviets um, sort of, the way they presented uh, their capacity uh, created a bit of confusion um, in, in the West. So for example, the uh, Soviets were developing uh, new uh, longer range bombers, uh, the Bear and the Bison, uh, the, the, that was the, the names of these bombers is, that were eventually deployed and so on. But in 1954 and 55, uh, the Soviets at their annual May Day parades and so on um, presented a number of these bombers on fly pass, but the bombers sort of went around the, the, the area two or three times to give the impression of much larger numbers actually uh -huh. in service. And this created uh, quite a stir in uh, in the U.S. in particular and the fear that the uh, Soviets were developing uh, a much stronger bomber force, much more capable bomber force than than had been predicted. But what's what's interesting actually is the assessments that were being produced at that time, the, the joint strategic assessments, had identified these new bombers and when they were likely to come into uh, into operational service and so on. And they were largely correct. Uh, and they predicted these uh, bombers coming into service later in the 1950s. But because of the public perception of the, the deception, essentially, that the Soviets had had created, uh, it became much more of a, a uh, political issue. Mm -hmm. And I should say that what I found interesting in my research is that in these uh, joint assessments where Canada and U.S. analysts were trying to 
really figure out where the threat was coming from, how it would develop, what the Soviet capacity, bomber capacity was, the American assessments were almost invariably uh, higher than the Canadian. So in terms of the the number of uh, bombers that the Soviets were likely to produce, the number that were actually in service at any given time, and the capabilities of those bombers, whereas the Canadians were much more hesitant to to leap to those kinds of conclusions. They looked at the evidence that was available and say, well, it, you know, there doesn't really look to be that many bombers in service. It doesn't really look that they're producing as many uh, as the Americans are estimating. And also the capabilities of them, their operational ability to launch these kinds of massive raids against North America were more limited than the uh, Americans were describing. So this posed a, a challenge for the Canadian uh, intelligence community because it was a need to create these joint assessments with the Americans, but there was a degree of disagreement. So how do you sort of square that circle? And a number of years, they sort of fudged the numbers and so on, but continually the Canadian view was that the Soviet bomber threat was not as severe as being described uh, by the Americans. And of course, there was sort of lots of other uh, elements at play, certainly in the American political situation, but the uh, the U.S. Air Force was very, very active in lobbying for larger forces, for for the need for more bombers and, and so on. And that became a, an important uh, political issue. It was somewhat less critical in, in Canada, but the U.S. Air Force was, was very effective in its uh, lobbying efforts. And what I found as well, and, and others in their research, is the U.S. intelligence, uh, the Air Force intelligence, is almost always biased to present a very extreme view of, of the threat, whether that was the bomber threat in the 50s or the missile threat uh, following decades and so on. Uh, and the the U.S. intelligence, U.S. Air Force intelligence sort of always looked at, at whatever evidence it had in sort of the worst possible light. In contrast, the Canadian intelligence was saying, what does this really mean? Does, does that evidence actually add up to what the Americans are are claiming yeah and it's i guess it's it's interesting too because like the u.s air force i mean part of this lobbying effort does is is in in a way to secure resources right to secure more assets and it's worth pointing out that and, and you mentioned this the royal canadian air force was kind of the darling of the budget during this period as well though wasn't it so there there still was quite a lot of money pouring into the royal canadian air force but as, but as you mentioned the air force intelligence in canada was not willing to go as far in assessing the threat as the Americans. Uh, that's right. And I mean, it is interesting as well to see the reaction of the RCAF uh, leadership when these assessments started coming out of the Joint Intelligence Committee, uh, sort of questioning the full scale of, of the Soviet threat. Uh, and in particular, the, the assessment that was done in early 1958 by the Joint Intelligence Committee that, that made some clear judgments about the changing nature of the threat. But throughout that whole process, the Royal Canadian Air Force was attempting to um, modify those judgments, downplay those judgments, or, or have those judgments removed from the assessment, because mm -hmm. clearly this would call into question the need for the kind of interceptor that that was being proposed excuse right. me, in the, in the arrow. In the end, the RCAF really wasn't able to uh, modify the intelligence assessment. Um, and that's partly because of the nature of how intelligence was produced in Canada 
compared with the situation in, in the United States. So in Canada, the Joint Intelligence Committee operated essentially on the basis of, of uh, consensus. And so any one organization couldn't um, sort of dominate the conclusions. The, 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 right. the group had to jointly come to those conclusions. Whereas in, in the United States, each of the um, services, the Air Force, the Army, whatever Navy, um, took the lead in the assessments dealing with their area of expertise. Uh, yes. Right. So the USAF in the U.S. was able was able to dominate the sort of interagency process, uh, and the conclusions were very much skewed in the direction of of their views, whereas the, that mechanism was different in Canada and the RCAF wasn't able to sort of bias the conclusions uh, to support its policy and preferences. Well, that's actually a really, that's a really key distinction, isn't it? I mean, that really defines the way that the Canadian intelligence community is approaching this issue. And, and just for our listeners out there to basically understand it, we're talking about the, these air forces attempting to persuade the government to invest in bomber interceptors. Um, in in the view of a you know supposed or or an increasing or supposedly increasing Soviet bomber threat, yet around sort of the 1950s, there is this growing realization, or at least there's this growing argument by many in the intel community that actually the bomber threat is going to fade, and a new threat is going to emerge. So maybe Alan, you could talk about this uh, this new emerging threat that begins to dominate the discussions in the intel community. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, folks, we know no one likes a good story broken up. And here at CCH, we hate it when you got to stop in the middle of a great story like the one today to talk about support. But the fact is that we rely on advertisement for the continued production of this show. It's really important to us because the fact is, this is an independent podcast. This is one that is made out of the sweat and blood of those who contribute to the show. So with that in mind, if you out there in podcast land are not a huge fan of listening to advertisements, you can find CCH episodes advertisement free. All you need to do is go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search Curious Canadian History and sign up. You donate one buck or two bucks to the podcast per episode and you receive access to all of our new episodes advertisement free. This is a great way to support the show and also skip all the advertisements I know some people just hate to listen to. So check out patreon.com slash Curious Canadian History today and get some advertisement-free shows. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Yes, I mean, and that was the the key judgments of this critical paper in uh, January 1958. Uh, So 
the Canadian intelligence community had, had obviously been looking very, very closely at the bomber threat to North America over the last number of years as, as new information came available and so on, uh, and looking at a variety of other threats as they were evolving. And the realization in, in Ottawa anyway was that the, uh, the Soviet bomber threat was not being built up to the extent that had originally been been thought that there were problems with these new bombers in terms of their actual performance, and there was far fewer of them being built than than had earlier been expected. And essentially, the the Soviet Union um, had come to the conclusion that that they really couldn't compete in the strategic bomber field, and that they would shift their technological and, and sort of economic focus uh, for defense spending to missiles instead of instead of bombers. And uh, so there was missiles under development in the late 50s, and the Canadian um, intelligence community basically concluded that those missiles would come into operational capacity by the early 60s, starting in about 1960, and that within a period of about five years, the threat would shift from uh, bombers in, in the late 50s to um, almost entirely from missiles and that the, the Soviet Union had very little um, incentive or reason to much expand its bomber force when it was putting all this money into uh, the, the ballistic missile uh, capacity. And of course, uh, at that time, and, and even today, it's impossible to defend against uh, ballistic missiles. So the obvious implication of that was that very expensive interceptors uh, were not going to be effective uh, to deal with the growing missile threat yeah and that's and that's really well said now do, what's interesting does this differ in terms of the timeline of this realization of the threat from ballistic missiles does this differ from the u.s intelligence community do they come to the table a little later or come to the realization a little later they did but as you say it was a little bit later two or three years later uh, and again this is a reflection of the influence that the uh u.s air force intelligence had on their assessments, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, you know, was getting involved in this kind of strategic uh, military assessment. But previously, they had left this all to the the military services. So this was something actually new for the CIA in the late fifties, uh, and they were increasingly involved in this field and also increasingly coming to the conclusion that the bomber threat was not as great as as was advertised, mm -hmm. and. They were supported in this by uh, new uh, intelligence technology to collect information on what was actually happening in the Soviet Union. So starting in 1955-56, the uh, U-2 high-altitude uh, photo reconnaissance missions were being flown, and they were bringing back information that showed there was far fewer bombers sitting on Soviet airfields than had been expected, and the activities at Soviet production plants was less and so, you know, this was feeding into the CIA view that about the bomber threat, but this information was still fragmentary. It wasn't conclusive. And so that allowed the uh, U.S. Air Force to continue arguing for an expanded bomber threat. Mm. Uh, and again, in, in 1960, the uh, U.S. Uh, satellite photo reconnaissance program started and started, was able to get much more complete coverage of these uh, Soviet airfields and production facilities and so on. And so by the early 
uh, 60s, the Americans had, had essentially come to the same conclusion that uh, the, the main threat would be from missiles rather than bombers. Mm-hmm. But that was somewhat delayed, and partly because of the dynamics within the U.S. intelligence community uh, and sort of the reluctance of the Air Force to accept this new information uh, because it challenged their their earlier position. What, what was interesting in terms of the, the politics, the bureaucratic politics within the U.S. and within the U.S. military is that the U.S. Air Force, you know, finally came to accept the, the changing threat because they also were able to take over the the role of uh, being responsible for ballistic missiles. Uh, so right. there was sort of less of a bureaucratic requirement for them to sort of hang their, you know, <clears throat> their view of the world on the bomber threat. They could also, you know, shift the view to the missile threat. But then their argument would be, well, the, the Soviets are building lots of missiles, so we have to build lots of missiles, and the Air Force will run that program. That's interesting. So it keep it keeps them quite relevant in the in this new emerging threat, doesn't it? And thus they can also continue to uh, lobby for uh, assets and and funding at at, at, a, at a high level. Um, I think uh, what when we go back to Canada, and this is the crux. This is what makes your research so fascinating. How does the the conclusions of the Canadian intelligence community affect the the actual Avro Aero project itself. Okay, um, I need to make clear that the role of intelligence is to provide um, sort of an assessment of likely future outcomes and so on. It's not to make specific uh, policy recommendations, okay. uh, but sometimes, and I think this is one case, the the policy implications of a particular intelligence conclusion are quite clear. So in none of the uh, intelligence assessments was there any recommendation on whether the arrow should or shouldn't be cancelled. In fact, I don't believe the arrow was actually mentioned in any of these uh, intelligence assessments. They were looking specifically at the changing Soviet threat. Um, But clearly when they lined up all of the evidence and made their uh, sort of bottom line conclusion that the threat was going to shift from bombers to missiles, the policy implication was was very clear. And that caused problems for the Chiefs of Defense staff, uh, sorry, the the Chiefs of Staff Committee as it existed uh, in the late 50s. because that isn't really what they wanted to hear. At that point, in, in January 1958, the uh, Chiefs of Staff Committee was still supportive of the of the Arrow. And uh, obviously, the, the Chief of the Air Staff was very, very uh, supportive and, and not willing to accept the conclusions of the Joint Intelligence Committee. Um, it was interesting, shortly after that, the U.S. general who was heading uh, NORAD came to meet with the uh, Chiefs of Staff Committee and basically said, you know, the bomber threat is there, it's going to continue, we need to worry about it, et cetera, et cetera. And the uh, Chiefs of Staff Committee sort of accepted that judgment uh, over what it had received from its own Joint Intelligence Committee. Mm. Um, but but other things were happening in that period. Uh, and I mean, one of the big questions uh, related to the arrow was the increasing cost and so on. Um so as the months went by into the summer of uh, 1958, the whole issue of cost was becoming much more critical. So in various meetings of the Chiefs of Staff Committee in the summer of 
uh, 58 in, in July and August, there was a gradual recognition that that the program wasn't sustainable. And so it was at that point that the conclusion that uh, the threat was changing came to factor into the thinking of the Chiefs of Staff Committee. So essentially they had accepted the implications of the intelligence assessment that they had received from the Joint Intelligence Committee. And that then formed the centerpiece of their advice to to the Cabinet Defence Committee and and the full committee. And the Defence Minister Perks at the time was also coming to that same sort of conclusion. Again, I think, at least in part, because of the uh, assessment that was made uh, by the Intelligence uh, intelligence Committee. So at, at that point, essentially, the Chiefs of Staff Committee, rec- you know, their, their conclusion was that due to the uh, changing nature of the threat, uh, there was less justification for spending large amounts of money on an interceptor that would not be sort of fully effective in, in dealing with that threat. And so that essentially was the advice in sort of various forms, but that's the bottom line that the Chiefs of Staff Committee made to Cabinet when they were considering it, the, the decision on the arrow in the uh, fall of 58. Uh, and they made the decision to, to continue parts of the program for another six months. But by early 1959, the Chiefs of Staff Committee was making the same recommendations, essentially based on the the conclusions of the Joint Intelligence Committee uh, and the government made its decision to to finally cancel the program in early 1959. And it's interesting because when the Diefenbaker government does cancel the program, uh, the lang- and you talk about this in your research, the language, the rhetoric that they use is kind of interesting because it focuses on certain issues and really downplays, or at least maybe doesn't downplay, but doesn't talk about other issues. Maybe, could you expand on that a little bit, how Diefenbaker approaches explaining to the public and the government what why they made the decision? Well, I, I did think that was very interesting in, in terms of uh, political spin or you know political exactly. presentation yeah. of the of the decision, and uh, ultimately when Diefenbaker uh, spoke to Parliament and, and announced the the cancellation, uh, the the principal reason, principal rationale for that decision, as he presented it, was because of the changing threat. Um, and he did not say a great deal about the the cost, which, in fact, certainly in my reading of the situation, was a, a, a major factor in uh, the cancellation. But from a political point of view, that was a bit more awkward because it could be spun by the opposition as saying the government wasn't ready to spend the money necessary to defend Canada right. and so on. Yeah. So they thought uh, the the the, uh, the government at the time thought that the best way to sort of present this decision was to say that the the threat was changing, therefore the requirement for the arrow was less, and therefore it wasn't worth going ahead. And that, in my view, is, is in fact an accurate reflection of the advice they were receiving from um, the military. Um, but they weren't really able to back it up. And that's how the opposition was really able to criticize them for that, say, you know, we don't believe that the threat is changing. You know, in fact, you know, look at the, uh, 
the congressional hearings that are being held in, in Washington and U.S. Air Force officers are standing up and saying the bomber threat is a major problem and so on. And so you're telling us now the bomber threat isn't as much of a problem, but where's the evidence? And because of the whole aura of secrecy around the intelligence, the government really wasn't able to sort of put forward the, the full justification for why it, it did truly believe that the threat was, was changing. And it ultimately, it never was able to put forward that evidence. And now it's taken more than 60 years for, for the full story uh, to come out. And, and where, uh, you know, the, the defamating government, I think, was accurately reflecting the advice that it had received from, from the military and was accurately reflecting the uh, intelligence assessment about, about the threat. Um, but sort of all of the writing about the arrow up until now has has not been able to address that very important element of the whole question. I think maybe for our listeners, what's really interesting is you mentioned, you know, for 60 years, this story has not been able to come out. Why Why now? Why does the story able to sort of be illuminated upon? Uh, well, I guess ultimately it was a matter of sort of finally digging this material out of the archives. Uh, which is a major challenge. It's a continuing challenge. Um, I'm involved with a group of researchers in the Canadian Porn Intelligence History Project. And much of what we do is uh, aimed at trying to um, get access to these, these records, these and related records dealing with Canadian intelligence issues. Uh, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in this, this foreign intelligence, which is intelligence dealing with with uh, or, or supporting policy decisions on uh, defense and, uh, and international affairs and so on. So we're not as interested in the security intelligence side of things, which, which is a major focus of most researchers. So we've been uh, undergoing a, a major campaign of, of access to information requests, looking at specific record sets dealing with foreign intelligence in Canada. So that's been going on for a number of years now, and now is is starting to bear fruit. Uh, but it's a very uh, difficult um, process. Uh, Canada does not have any formal mechanism for declassifying historical records after a given right. period of time, unlike our Five Eyes allies, where there are processes in place so that after 30 years or a given period, uh, records are released. That doesn't exist in Canada. Uh, it's all reliant on the access to information system, which was never designed to deal with, with these kinds of historical issues. Um, so there's there's no sort of magic bullet here. It isn't as though the government suddenly decided to open up. Uh, right. It's because researchers have been hammering and hammering away at uh, these record sets and gradually uh, achieving some success in getting some of them released. But it's a a very slow process. Yeah. And well, we're, we're, I mean, thankfully there are people like yourself who are willing to do the work to get them because uh, as you can see, as you've probably discovered and as you keep discovering in your, in your research journey, uh, these are opening up new avenues of understanding of a lot of very important topics. And I guess that brings me to my final question, which is, you know, to sum up, in what ways does your research expand on our understanding of both the Avro Arrow story, but also Canada in this sort of Cold War period? I think in various ways. I think I was struck in particular by um, 
by the Diefenbaker's government's handling of this. I think the Diefenbaker government has been criticized very, very harshly for its decision. Um, and from my reading of, of the, the documents that we now have, I think this in a much more positive light. I mean, that wasn't the intention of, of my my uh, research, but I think that's the conclusion that comes out, that the Diefenbaker government did seriously consider um, sort of a range of factors in, in this decision. I don't think it made the decision uh, easily, but I think it it was... A, a reasonable decision at the time based on the information that they had. And now we have a better understanding of the, the full range of, of information that it, the government was, was working from. Uh, so I think that's an important lesson in all of this. I think more broadly, this, this, this situation addresses, I think, a common misperception about Canadian intelligence. There's sort of the assumption that uh, Canada is forced to rely on its allies uh, for intelligence, and, and certainly it receives a great deal of intelligence from uh, the U.S., uh, Britain, and others. Um, but it's not a situation where Canada is just accepting this intelligence at face value. Uh, Canada does have a uh, an effective system for uh, carrying out independent uh, analysis of the information and intelligence it received from its uh, from its allies. And I think this is a very important um, requirement for Canada to to make its own independent uh, decisions on uh, foreign and defense policy. So the the ability of the Canadian intelligence community is often uh, misunderstood or not not fully understood, partly because, uh, the government has been so secretive about it. But I think if Canadians were more aware of the, the strategic assessment capacity of the Canadian intelligence community, uh, they, they would have a different perspective on uh, sort of how we deal with intelligence we receive from our allies. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. Friends.